I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. The impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. We're witnessing them firsthand, the onslaught of wildfires, heat waves, floods, droughts, and superstorms. As a climate scientist, I've long seen this coming. I would have preferred to have been left alone in the laboratory doing what I had trained to do, crunching numbers, constructing models, and solving problems. Instead, I found myself and my work dragged into the center of the fractious climate change debate, the victim of a vicious fossil fuel industry-led disinformation campaign. The forces of inaction, the inactivists as I call them, can no longer deny the climate crisis, so they've instead turned to a new array of tactics. Deflection, division, despair-mongering, in what I've termed the new climate war. Having faced the full force of such tactics, I've learned how to recognize them and how to beat them back. I wrote The New Climate War to share these insights and to equip you with a battle plan in the fight to preserve our planet. There is still time to limit warming and prevent the worst impacts if we act decisively. With a widespread youth climate movement that has placed the focus on our ethical obligations to our children and grandchildren, widespread calls for social and climate justice, and an incoming American president with a mandate to lead on climate, the forces of action have now aligned. Now is our time. Today we are honored to be joined by one of the world's most preeminent experts on climate change. Michael Mann is Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He is the author of five best-selling books, including the recently published The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, as well as The Tantrum That Saved the World, a carbon-neutral kids book, and The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. In 2019, Michael received the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, often called the Nobel Prize for the Environment. And in 2020, he was elected to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He has authored or co-authored over 230 climate-focused academic papers. There is so much to talk about and so much to do. Let's get to it. Michael Mann, welcome to We Can Be. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. We're talking at a time when the Gulf Coast and the Northeast are still struggling to recover from Hurricane Ida, which has been estimated to kill, at this point, over 80 people across a wide swath of states, caused widespread flooding, excessive heat in the aftermath of the storm. And you actually said in a Boston Globe editorial recently that Hurricane Ida was a shot across the Earth's bow, which I thought was a fascinating way to describe it. Can you tell us what you mean by that? I think with each of these extreme events now, we're seeing something new. We're in that undiscovered territory now where we're seeing events that are just qualitatively different from anything we've seen before mm. because of the amplifying effects of climate change. In this case, the big surprise was, you know, when the storm made landfall, it was a major hurricane. If it had, you know, had another 24 hours, I have no doubt it would have made Category 5 status, but it made landfall before it had time to in 
intensify, but um, it did a lot of damage. Louisiana, New Orleans, the flooding, particularly, you know, in regions where, you know, you find the poorest communities that don't really have the resources, they don't have the sort of resilience to deal with these impacts. And so there's a climate justice component to what we saw play out there. But the real surprise was the huge amount of rainfall that fell when the storm, you know, traveled across the mid-Atlantic and the the northeast, just producing these catastrophic floods Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, in New York City. And that really caught people off guard. And what is so important about that, why it is a shot across the bow, is that this was just a weak tropical storm at this point, practically a tropical depression. But there was so much moisture in that storm because it was feeding off of a record warm Gulf of Mexico with a very deep layer of warm water, which means that the storm intensifies, the energy is derived from the heat of the oceans, but the amount of moisture in the atmosphere in that storm is a function of how warm those ocean temperatures are, as well as how strong the storm is. A stronger storm also entrains more moisture into it. And so it's sort of a double whammy. The ocean's evaporating more moisture because it's warmer, and the, the stronger storm, because of those warm waters, is entraining more moisture. And so there was a huge amount of moisture, and what happened is it sort of waited until it hit the East Coast to dump all of that moisture out. You know, I'd like to say it's a taste of things to come, but this is where we are now. These events are baked in. This is what we have to deal with now. And it will get worse. And that was what my op-ed was about, sort of inviting people to imagine what the future could look like if we fail to act on this defining crisis. We actually are entering a period of new, where we can't rely on the past as an indicator of what will be coming. You talk about a new era of superstorms, for example, and you talk about the shifts not only in the intensity of storms, but in the location of storms. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see that playing out and why it's important for the United States? We are seeing qualitatively different hurricanes that form in new places. There's a basic rule of thumb, and in today's climate, there appears to be a threshold of a little over 27 degrees Celsius, sort of in the low 80s Fahrenheit where the oceans are warm enough to create these entities that we call tropical cyclones. And if they become strong enough, they become hurricanes, typhoons, super typhoons. There are different names for them. These tropical storms are driven by the heat of the ocean. And what's happening is that area of warm water is actually expanding further east. And so you get these waves that come off the coast of Africa and create a disturbance that can ultimately grow into a tropical cyclone or a hurricane as the winds, the trade winds, sort of move it west towards the Caribbean and eventually the United States. The area that's warm enough to support that so-called tropical cyclogenesis is extending further and further to the east as that warm pool of water that sort of is centered in the Caribbean and the western Atlantic is starting to expand. That area where sea surface as temperatures get warmer than about 27 degrees during the summer. That's expanding, so these storms can form earlier. Ironically, that could end up helping, say, the Mid-Atlantic and New York City if the storms form earlier, they're more likely to curve. They begin curving back, and rather than hitting the Mid-Atlantic, 
they hit the Northeast, or rather than hitting, you know, New York, they make it up to Massachusetts. There's some evidence that storms are starting to do that. So it might mean fewer storms that make landfall along the Southeast coast, but more storms potentially for New York and especially, say, for Boston. When, you know, I I wrote this piece in the Boston Globe and everywhere, whether it's New York City, the Gulf Coast, the Southeast Coast, those storms that do form are tending to get stronger. We're going to see more of those landfalling category four, category five storms. In fact, I argue in the piece that we really ought to be defining a category six, because when you have wind speeds 200 miles per hour or greater sustained, that's a qualitatively different storm. Than what we currently think of as a category five. what we currently classify. And so having category five be the highest category is that that's a storm that tends to do total destruction of uh, whatever structures are in its way. But we're building more resilient structures now. Right. And so in that sense, it does make sense to talk about, you know, these higher category storms where no place is safe. No place is safe for the equivalent of an EF5 tornado hundreds of kilometers wide, because that's the sort of storm that we could see in the future. You know, what's interesting about you is you're not a doomist. You're not an alarmist. You're very clear about risks. So I was actually surprised to see an interview in the Scottish Sun the other day with you. You cautioned about a global temperature increase of 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit. You said in that interview that that type of increase could lead to a collapse of our societal infrastructure and massive unrest and conflict, which in turn could lead to a future that resembles some Hollywood dystopian films, which I think a lot of us believe. But tell us more about what you were driving at there. Doomism, to me, is that, you know, we are committed to those dystopian futures. There's nothing we can do. And there are individuals who have quite a platform now who insist that we will all, you know, be extinct within the next 10 years. Actually, I think it was five years ago. So make it five years from now because of runaway warming. The science doesn't support that. And as I like to say, the truth is bad enough. We don't need to exaggerate the science because the truth alone is more than adequate cause for taking dramatic action. It is true, in my assessment of the science, that a five-degree warming of the Celsius of the planet, remember, that's nine degrees Fahrenheit, twice that much in the Arctic because of the amplifying effects of uh, feedbacks, the melting of ice, 18 degrees. That's a fundamentally different planet. We have to go back tens of millions of years to -hmm. find a planet that looked like that. And over 50 to 100 million years, you know, we and other living things can adapt to changes that large. But these changes are happening a million times faster, over 100 years. And so there is a real question as to whether our civilizational infrastructure can survive that large a shock. But that's one possible future, one in which we fail to take meaningful action. And that's so critical. So there are dystopian scenarios that could play out if we refuse to act. But at the same time, the science tells us that we can avoid what many scientists would consider catastrophic climate change if we take bold action now. We can prevent a warming of three degrees Fahrenheit. The evidence suggests that's a range 
where we can adapt. You know, if you do the math, and it is really just math, if you do the math, we can do that. We've got to bring carbon emissions down by 50% within the next decade, so it's a monumental task. But the only obstacle there isn't physics, it's political will. I want to turn for a moment to the issue of climate denialism. I think people still struggle to distinguish between weather and climate. You know, I'm reminded of all of the folks who argue every winter that because they're holding a snowball in their hand that there must not be global warming or because it's cold where they are that there must not be climate change. You're a contributor to the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that was released in August of 2021. 4,000 pages compiled by 234 authors, I think, relying on more than 14,000 studies, so about as comprehensive a view as one could ask for. The Washington Post said the report, quote, described how humans have altered the environment at an unprecedented pace and detailed how catastrophic impacts lie ahead unless the world rapidly and dramatically cuts greenhouse gas emissions. Are we finally to a point where the science is so overwhelming and the public attention to the science is so overwhelming that denialism is harder than it has been for the last 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. I believe that very much is the case. I should clarify that I was a lead author on the third assessment report of the IPCC published in 2001. Since then, I've preferred to remain on the sidelines of the IPCC process because it means I can sort of weigh in as an impartial, independent voice. And the IPCC has tended to be quite conservative. Uh, Mm. One might argue overly conservative when it comes to sort of stating with bluntness what the, the science has to say. And I think what was so fascinating about this IPCC report is you could just feel it. The scientific community collectively, we've had enough. We're no longer going to hold back. We're going to be blunt with this report. We are seeing dangerous climate change impacts and no hemming and hawing anymore about the connections with extreme weather events, in part because the science has evolved to the point where we can do these detection and attribution studies, side-by-side studies where climate models are run without greenhouse increases and and with greenhouse gas increases, and we can see how often a particular event happens in, in the two different cases, and that allows us to sort of quantify the impact that climate change has on these extreme weather events, in part because of that sort of scientific infrastructure the scientific community feels more confident in making those linkages and saying, yeah, we would not be seeing, you know, the Pacific Northwest heat dome. There was a study, one of these attribution studies, that used the words virtually impossible in terms of that event having happened in the absence of our warming of the planet. What has shifted that climate scientists are now much more willing to state the facts of what's going on and... And to actually assert the true dynamics of climate change. Maybe what I'm really driving at is what have you learned about how to communicate complex information that's different now than what you were doing 10 years ago? Yeah, you know, I think the community collectively has, has learned that there's a lost opportunity when you don't draw that connection. These extreme weather events are an opportunity for us to explain how climate change is increasing the likelihood of these events. Scientists are ordinary people, too. And I think we all can tell that something qualitatively different is happening now. And the scientists Mm -hmm. themselves, I think many of the scientists, many of my fellow scientists, 
are sort of having this OMG moment. It's like we've been studying this for decades. Our models predicted this. We didn't really believe that it could happen. <laughs> it was right. these were our models. Uh, we had to tease the signal out of the noise and the data. Now the signal has gotten so large that you don't need to tease it out of the noise. It's playing out in real time on our television screens and our newspaper headlines. And so I think scientists like the rest of us realize that something has changed qualitatively, and that provides a license to be more blunt. And that sort of coincides with developments in the science, mm -hmm. which makes scientists more comfortable in talking about these connections because it provides them some statistical machinery. Scientists are comfortable now in sort of evolving away from a purely statistical characterization to a causal connection. That's so interesting, and it's a noticeable shift. You know, when I look at the IPCC report, the most recent version, it states that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen to levels not seen in two million years, that the oceans are turning acidic, that sea levels continue to rise, that Arctic ice is disintegrating, that weather-related disasters are growing more extreme and affecting every region of the world. Why not be alarmed about that? We'll get to hope later in all of yeah. that, but I'm I'm curious how you as a scientist looking at that don't get alarmed by it, or are you alarmed by it? I am alarmed, and I always like to draw the distinction because I think it's so important between being alarmed and being alarmist. Alarmist, mm. you know, has this connotation of henny penny, the sky is falling. It's an irrational belief in doom. Being alarmed by the impacts that we're seeing is a purely rational right. <laughs> response. And right. so sometimes the critics like to dismiss climate scientists by calling them alarmist because it has these mm -hmm. negative connotations. Let's reclaim the rightful role of being alarmed because mm -hmm. we are alarmed at what we're seeing. Everybody should be alarmed. And it does get at this very important question about the dual role of what I like to say urgency and agency. The mm. urgency of acting now, but the fact that there is still time to act to prevent the worst impacts. That's the agency. And yeah. conveying urgency and indeed alarmism and doomism without agency can be problematic. It can lead people down a path of disengagement, which is the opposite of what we want to see. I love that framing around urgency and agency, and it's a good way, I think, to get into talking about your book a little more specifically. So you've got this new book out, which I highly, highly recommend, Thank The you. New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And you do argue in the book that as dire as things are, all is not lost. And you state the case for urgency, I think, really well. And you state the case for agency. I want to deal with how we view the notion of agency. So part of what you debunk is the myth that we can just change the trajectory of this through personal behavior by recycling more flying less and, you know, being less less bad people. And you make a case that that's actually a thought process that has been imposed on us by the fossil fuel industry. So can you talk to us about what you call the individual responsibility deflection campaign yeah. came about and how yeah. we need to think about it differently? It's insidious because we all know, you know, at a basic level, of course, personal responsibility is important. We should do what we can in our everyday lives to minimize our environmental impact. It's just the right thing to do. And, and in many cases, it, it saves us money. <laughs> and, and certainly, 
you know, we need systemic change, and systemic change uh, only comes about through collective action. And what is collective action but uh, a collection of actions by individuals? So individuals do very much matter. The problem is that industry groups have long recognized that they can hijack that conversation and use it to deflect attention and focus away from the systemic solutions, away mm. from the policies. And the example I use in, in the book, in the new climate war, the younger folks here might be a little too young to have grown up with the infamous crying Indian. Uh, oh, of course, of course. Some people have a deep abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. I think I was about six when that advertisement first uh, came on television. I remember it. And I remember how it had a huge impact on me and that entire generation. It was this tearful Native American. Turns out he wasn't even a Native American. He was an Italian-American actor playing <laughs> with, yeah. in a headdress playing uh, a Native American. And that was hardly the least of the subterfuge. <laughs> it was funded by the beverage industry, by Coca-Cola, Anheuser-Busch, <laughs> because they didn't want to see bottle bills passing in the states and then potentially at the national level, putting a deposit on a plastic or metal bottle or can, which would encourage people to return them. It would solve this problem or make huge headway in solving this problem, but it would hurt their bottom line because they'd be responsible for the processing of the returned bottles and cans. So they decided instead to finance this massive campaign to convince us implicitly we just need to clean up our bottles and cans. And meanwhile, they were fighting tooth and nail against any legislation. And it's a paradigm for understanding what fossil fuel interests are trying to do today. They're running with that playbook. Um, it isn't a coincidence that British Petroleum, BP, gave us the first widely used individual carbon footprint right. calculator because BP and the fossil fuel industry want to so focused on our own carbon footprint that we fail to notice theirs. We can't describe these huge systemic problems and make them the fault of individuals. So how do we change that narrative? What does agency look like yeah. if it's not cleaning up the litter in the, in the, along the riverbank? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and to me, you know, we see the answer to that in, in the activism we've seen in recent years, especially young folks, the mm. youth climate movement, uh, the Greta Thunberg and all the other uh, youth climate protesters and campaigns to protest the building of additional fossil fuel infrastructure pipeline. So that's activism and it's active involvement of individuals, but its aim is to put pressure on those people and institutions that can make the change that needs to happen. Because as individuals, we can't put a price on carbon. We can't subsidize renewable energy as an industry. We can't block new fossil fuel infrastructure. We need our elected representatives to do that. And they're only going to do that if we force their hand, if we force them to do that. So there is a direct relationship between individual action and engagement and policy action. So to me, I like to emphasize that. Sure, do everything you can in your everyday life to, to minimize your, your carbon footprint. Why not? But we should create incentives so that everybody will be encouraged to make decisions and take part in actions that are collectively good for the planet. And that only happens when we have policies and systemic changes that encourage that. 
The Tantrum That Saved the World by Megan Herbert and Michael E. Mann. Sophia was minding her business one day when, quite without warning, a bear came to stay. The ice that he lived on had ceased to exist. He hoped that Sophia would kindly assist. Startled and flustered, Sophia said, No. But the bear came right in. He had nowhere to go. I think it's fascinating about you that you even turn to younger people in thinking about how to engage people for the long term. And in one of your books, you reach out to young folks. It's called The Tantrum That Saved the World. So the story, just very quickly, is about a little girl who has a polar bear visitor one day who asks for her help in stopping the ice that he lives on from melting away, right? And how did that story come about? How did that occur to you as a as a story? Megan and I met at a workshop, and I think this is an argument for sort of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary opportunities. Mm -hmm. It was a workshop on climate communication and messaging in Iceland, wide range of people, climate scientists who are interested in messaging like myself. Mm book authors, writers, and among them was Megan Herbert, who is this children's author and illustrator. And she and I hit it off at the meeting. We, we sort of had similar visions, me coming from the science side and her coming from the artistic side. And we decided it would be really fun to work on a project together. Um, and it took a couple of years. You know, we finally put it together, got the book out. And, and now, again, yeah, we're really excited that in February, it's going to be published by a major distributor. So we're hoping it'll get the sort of audience we had hoped it yeah. would get. How did you start talking to your own daughter about climate change? I remember when my daughter was quite young, you know, was she four or five years old reading the Lorax to her? Uh, great book. It had a formative impact on me when I was a child, and it was wonderful to be able to share it. Sort of bittersweet, though, to share it with my daughter because it's a sad book. It mm -hmm. ends on a cautiously optimistic note, right, with the seed, but it's dealing with that competition, exactly what we're talking about, urgency and the danger of despair and agency. And so it wasn't explicitly about climate change, but it was about preserving our environment. That was the experience that I remember where I was first able to sort of share these emotions with my daughter. I remember she was tearful at the end of the Lorax, and I had to explain to her that, no, you know, there, there's, there's hopefulness here. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with one word. Unless? Yes, unless. What's an unless? Just a faraway word, just a faraway thought. A thought? About what? Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. I love this example, partly because I think children's literature is profoundly important. We undervalue it. But also because I think that, as we were talking about before, scientists struggle with the part of their job that involves communicating what they know. And I'm wondering, did you get pushback from academia for writing a children's book? Well, you know, it's a great question. I'll confess something to you. 
There is a certain license that comes with having been vilified and attacked by the fossil fuel industry for two decades. <laughs> Your yeah. colleagues are willing to give you a little bit of space. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they didn't require that your children's book be peer-reviewed? <laughs> there's a certain license, I think, that comes from having gone through that gauntlet and, and come out on the other side. Yeah. It's sort of this feeling that, well, they've thrown everything at me that they had, and I'm still standing. It, it can be liberating in a certain way. Mm. And so I've been able to make some sort of outside-the-box decisions and choices. I'm in a position to do things that some younger scientists aren't. And for that reason, I feel it's important for us to try to create space for them so that, you know, that it will become more accepted in academia, that outreach and communication is something to be rewarded, that it should be part of the tenure decision-making. You know, scientists who came before me, like Steve Schneider, like Carl Sagan, helped create space for my generation, and now I feel like we can help create space for that next generation. Michael Mann thinks he's so smart Totally inventing the hockey stick chart Ignoring the snow and the cold in a downward line Hide the decline Hide the decline I'm very familiar with the case of Herb Needleman, who was a scientist at the University of Pittsburgh who did some of the original work on lead. Hero of mine. And he was dragged through the mud for a lot of years, and a concerted attempt was made by industry to destroy his career. Uh, he was roundly vindicated in the end and has been proven more right every single year. Similarly, you were attacked and charged with breaching principles of ethical science and, and so forth and were vindicated and have emerged at the other end and you're being proven more right every year. But what shifted for you as a result of being attacked? Did it make you want to hide or did it make you want to be louder? Much to, I think, the chagrin of my detractors, it was the latter. Mm. You know, I think it was intended, the attacks were intended to cause me to shut up, to withdraw into the laboratory. And I guess it's just because of my constitution, my, my personality, that that isn't the way that I, I respond to things. You know, when I was in grade school, I wasn't a big kid, but I would stand up to the bullies because it was just the right thing to do, even if you get beat up. And yeah. so I was willing to get beat up by the bullies if that's what it would take to do what I saw as the right thing. And I'll tell you, if they had left me alone to just continue doing scientific research and publishing it, I wouldn't be out here today. I wouldn't be out on the front lines of the communication battle. But they forced me out of the laboratory into the public square with the attacks against the hockey stick and the hostile congressional hearings and the subpoenas and mm -hmm. the rest of them. They forced me out into that space, and I came to embrace that opportunity. I never expected that I would have an opportunity mm -hmm. to inform the conversation about the greatest challenge we face as a civilization, and I feel privileged to be in that position, even though it's not the one I signed up for. <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking of which, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine earlier this year, you discuss your support of putting a price on carbon emissions, which is a 
that's a controversial subject in environmental communities because it's fallen a bit out of favor with some activists who say it is, in the words of Rolling Stone journalist Jeff Goodell, a neoliberal scheme that will enrich Wall Street and inevitably be corrupted by politics. <laughs> so that's not the highest recommendation for a policy shift. Other than that, um, though, it's great. They, right, <laughs> right. So why why do you feel strongly about the role a carbon tax plays in fighting climate change? Why do we need something like that? I felt it was important to sort of clear the air on carbon pricing because it has sort of become a bugaboo in some sort of progressive circles uh, in the environmental community because of what I would say is a perception that it is antithetical to social justice and racial justice and and climate justice. And that's, to me, based on a, a number of misconceptions about how it can potentially work. The important thing is, you know, what's going to be done with the revenue that you bring in? Mm. that's going to determine whether it's progressive or regressive. Um, And this is something the Biden administration, for example, is talking a lot about in their own sort of executive climate actions, making sure that that a lot of the resources go to those frontline communities that have been impacted, that, you know, are low income. They don't have the resources to deal with the impacts in the way that wealthier communities and individuals can. So there are ways to you know, implement a carbon pricing scheme so that the money actually flows back progressively. Mm. And that's the way that it worked in Australia. Australia had an emissions trading scheme. It reduced carbon emissions by 10% within the first nine months. And low-income, you know, earners were actually benefiting from it. But then the Murdoch media and the conservatives weaponized it in the next election. They were able to get rid of the carbon pricing. And that's where they are now. But it, it, it was done progressively there. It's being done progressively in Canada. So it can be implemented. That's going to be about the political battle. And there's no way to avoid the political battle in any sort of climate policy. You address in the book, The New Climate War, what you call the P word, panic. And you you write, panic is a word that conjures images of people running and screaming through the streets. It evokes irrational, desperate, rash behavior rather than considered well-thought-out, deliberate action. The latter is helpful. The former is not. Even Greta Thunberg said in an address to the World Economic Forum in 2019, I want you to panic, but she said next, and I want you to act, which I think is the same point you were driving at in the book. We seem to live in an era that some have described as an age of despair, where there is just a sense of being overwhelmed. And I think the pandemic has greatly amplified this. How do we find our way past that panic to that sense of agency that you were talking about before? You know, I can only tell you that my perception is that the youth climate movement has played a really important role here in sort of recentering the conversation because for too long we allowed it to be in the domain of science and economics and policy and politics. When more than anything else, it's an issue of ethics, our ethical Mm -hmm. obligation not to destroy this planet for our children, for our grandchildren. So I I look for reasons to be optimistic because the science tells me it's still possible to avert the worst impacts of climate change. The numbers, as a scientist, I know the numbers. They tell me it's still possible. The only obstacle is political willpower. It isn't physics, the laws of physics. And to me, I remain, and you might call it at that point, no longer an act of scientific reasoning, but an act of faith. 
that we will find the political will to rise to the occasion. There are reasons for optimism that we have the technology. All we lack at this point is political willpower. That's why I spend so much time emphasizing that side of it. We can do it. I almost just want to end right there, but the name of this program is We Can Be, and it's kind of an incomplete sentence, so I want to ask you how you would complete that sentence based on what you're doing and what we've just talked about. We can be what? We can be successful in maintaining a healthy planet for us and future generations. As Michael just said, science tells us that it is still possible to avert the most devastating impacts of climate change, and the only obstacle to our doing so is political willpower. The situation is dire, there's no doubt about that, but we still hold in our hands the power we need to save our planet. It is our choice as to whether or not we choose to use that agency, that collective power, to educate and guide our elected officials to make necessary changes to our local, state, and national energy policies. I love what Michael shared about Greta Thunberg's thoughts on what she calls the P word. She said, I want you to panic, and then I want you to act. But those actions must go beyond simply altering our individual recycling, travel, or food consumption. They must include holding our leaders accountable for the long-term effects of the energy policies they legislate. We have the science. We have a well-informed and burgeoning youth environmental movement. And we have the powerful agency of our own votes and voices. As Michael said at the beginning of this episode, the forces of action have now aligned. It is up to us to set those forces into motion. Let's get to work.